Chapter Twenty One of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One The American Invader. After brief allusion to the incidents connected with Miss Dix's arrival in England, October eighteen fifty four, it became necessary, as has been seen, to turn backward for a while in order to narrate consecutively the Sable Island episode in her career. The news of the happy success of which reached her a month or more after her landing in Liverpool. At that time we left her sadly tired, as she confessed, but resolving to take things easier in a week, and by way of this, proposing in ten days to go to Scotland to see the hospitals. Her immediate purpose, however, seems to have been changed in favor of three weeks of recuperative travel in Ireland. Indeed, it now fairly began to look as though the overtaxed woman really intended to give herself a period of protracted rest, and would, moreover, have keenly enjoyed it, had not events soon occurred which were to awaken once again the master passion of her nature and throw it into flaming activity. Thus, as late even as December 8, 1854, she is found writing to her friend, Miss Heath, in America, quote, I could not but smile at your idea of my visiting the prisons in Italy, an idea certainly that you have the sole merit of suggesting, for it had not occurred to me, for any purpose, to penetrate into those places of so many bitter memories and horrible sufferings. What should I gain, or what would others gain, by my passage through those dreary dungeons and under the Piombini? Where I do visit prisons, it is where I have before me a rational object and a clear purpose. As I write, the little birds are singing merrily, cheerily below my windows, the flowers on my table yield a sweet fragrance, the loristinas open their buds and flowers along the walks, and the grass is a vivid green. From the tenor of the above letter, it would seem that Miss Dix's nature was imperfectly sympathetic with the order of sensibilities which lead the average American tourist to feel that a visit to Venice would hardly be worth the discomforts of a voyage across the Atlantic, unless it yielded an hour, at least, of the luxury of tears with poor Silvio Pellico under the lead roofs of the Doge's palace. True, Silvio Pellico has now these many years been dead, and, it is devoutly to be hoped, in bliss with the saints in heaven. Still, was he not once a poor, languishing prisoner? This singular contrast between the immediate practical objects for which sentimental tourists effusively explore prisons and chambers of torture— 
and those which actuate the Howards and Fries in their grim fight with groans, curses, typhus fever, and broken idiocy, is one frequently noted between amateurs and professionals in philanthropy. By the 26th of February, however, it is evident that Mystics is taking things more easily after the wanted fashion of her last fifteen years. She has gone to Scotland and is yielding herself to the line of least resistance as obediently as the gentle brook, only in this case the brook is a mountain torrent that finds the natural outlet to its heroic temper in forcing its way through barriers of granite. The first letter which brings this out is addressed to her friend Miss Heath. Though the letter is written from Edinburgh, not a word does it contain about the dungeon in which hapless Mary, Queen of Scots, was immured, nor, indeed, about the sufferings of any other, though long departed, historical character. Quote, Edinburgh, February 26th. 1855. Dear Annie, if you should visit Great Britain, recollect that no city will claim rewardingly so much of your time as this. I have had the good fortune to enjoy the best society here, and shall recollect so much with great pleasure that it is painful to connect with it what is very much the reverse of good. I mean a few of the many public institutions in the city and neighborhood which are preeminently bad. Of these, none are so much needing quick reform as the private establishments for the insane. I am confident that this move is to rest with me, and that the sooner I address myself to this work of humanity— the sooner will my conscience cease to suggest effort or rebuke inaction. It will be no holiday work, however, but hundreds of miserable creatures may be released from a bitter bondage, which the people at large are quite unconscious of. It is true I came here for pleasure, but that is no reason why I should close my eyes to the condition of these most helpless of all God's creatures. It is clear from this letter that Miss Dix has already begun to strike upon abuses and miseries in Scotland that fill her heart with the same distress and moral wrath inspired in her by her first encounter with the like in her native New England. This conviction settled in an hour for her all international questions. Scotland or the United States? What matter in which of the two outcast wretches were shivering in chill, dripping cells, chained to walls, beaten with clubs? To what end, she vehemently argued, did Christ tell the story of the Samaritan stranger and the wounded Jew? if every effort to obey his call, go thou and do likewise, was to be paralyzed by the modern travesty of the old, hard-hearted Jewish maxim, the Scotch have no dealings of mercy even with the Americans. It was the Martin Luther spirit 
once again to the front. Here I stand. God help me. I cannot otherwise. Remonstrances from all sides now came from loved and honored English friends. Some told her plainly she could do no good, and that her action would be regarded as impertinent interference on the part of a stranger and outsider. Others reasoned with her as though she were under the spell of mere nervous restlessness. Still others deplored that, in her state of exhaustion, she should allow anything to interfere with needful rest, and so endanger her prospects of future usefulness. Among the last was her venerated friend, Mrs. William Rathbone, to whom she replied in a letter whose underscored words witness the vehemence of her feeling in the matter. To Mrs. William Rathbone, quote, I am not so very ill, only very variable, and I assure you, do not work the more for being tired. I am not naturally very active, and never do anything there is a fair chance other people will take up. So when you know I am busy, you may be sure it is leading the forlorn hope which I conduct to a successful termination through a certain sort of obstinacy that some people make the blunder of calling zeal, and the yet greater blunder of having its first inciting cause in philanthropy. I have no particular love for my species at large, but own to an exhaustless fund of compassion. It is pretty clear that I am in for a serious work in both England and Scotland. I do not see the end of this beginning, but everybody says, who speaks at all on this question, that if I go away the whole work will fall off. So I pursue what I so strangely commenced. End quote. Almost of the same date, February 20th, is another letter to Mrs. Rathbone, which shows what rapid progress she is making in gaining adherence, and how utterly indifferent is now to her the question whether the work of mercy she is engaged in shall chance to fall within the boundaries of her own country or those of a country not her own. Quote, Edinburgh, February twentieth, 1855. My dear Mrs. Rathbone, the procession of my fate still holds me here. I expected this night to have lodged in Newcastle, but I am fairly in for reform of the establishments at Musselburg, and have consented under advice and request of Mr. Combe, Sir Robert Arbuthnot, Lord Irving, Senior Judge, the Lord Provost, Dr. Lincoln, and others, to delay another week. I fear the next move connected with this may be to London, but possibly not. Lord Tainmouth and Sir Walter Trevelyan are numbered with my allies. Your excellent friend, Dr. Trail, is earnest in this business. I have asked him to check the idea that some might naturally adopt that I came here to take up this measure, than which nothing was ever farther from my thoughts. 
Dr. Simpson, in his earnestness, introduced me to a party the other day as our timely arrived benefactor and reformer. This thought will kill my plans outright. So I gave Dr. Trail the commission to set others right. Unfortunately, everybody is very busy, and all say I can do what citizens cannot. The sheriff and the procurator fiscal are in great perplexity. I have written a great deal about myself, but do not suppose, therefore, that I am self-engrossed. Tell Mr. Rathbone, with my love, that I can bear a little or a great deal of opposition and misapprehension in such a cause as I am pressing here, and that it is a question of conscience with me, not a self-indulging and indulgent pursuit. But I really do not want to create any additional discussion of this question. I have here, at all events, passed the Rubicon, and retreat is not to be thought of. What now, it becomes pertinent to ask, was the justification, the dire necessity, she herself would have said, of Miss Dix's thus heading the forlorn hope and throwing herself into the breach in the determination to bring to a sense of their accountability before God and man the people of another nationality than her own. The justification can in no way be made clearer than through the direct statements and generally express words of Dr. Daniel Hack Took, one of the most prominent alienists of Great Britain. In his History of the Insane in the British Isles, Dr. Tuke devotes a long section of his work to the gradual steps toward amelioration taken in Scotland and emphasizes at length the obligation the whole country lay under to Miss Dix for a work at once so humanely conceived and so brilliantly executed as actually to revolutionize the lunacy laws of the land. This writer is a lineal descendant of the great-hearted Quaker William Tuke, who shares with Pinnell the beneficent glory of ushering in the age of humanity in the treatment of insanity. Moreover, as an eyewitness of the work of mystics in Scotland, and most efficient sympathizer with it, his testimony carries additional weight. Quote, Judging from the records of the past, says Dr. Tuke, as given or brought to light by writers like Heron, Dalyell, and Dr. Mitchell, no country ever exceeded Scotland in the grossness of its superstition and the unhappy consequences which flowed from it. When we include in this the horrible treatment of the insane, from the prevalent and for long inveterate belief in witchcraft, we cannot find language sufficiently strong to characterize the conduct of the people, from the highest to the lowest in the land, until this monstrous belief was expelled by the spread of knowledge the influence on which on conduct and on law some do not sufficiently realize. 
the lunatic and the witch of today might aptly exclaim, The good of ancient times let others state, I think it lucky I was born so late. Passing, continues Dr. Tuke, over two centuries, I must observe that in 1792, Dr. Duncan, then president of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, laid before that body a plan for establishing a lunatic asylum in the neighborhood of Edinburgh. But enough money was not raised to start the project in a rational way. First, in 1807, a royal charter was obtained, and subscriptions were raised not only from Scotland, but England, and even India, Ceylon, and the West Indies. Madras alone subscribed 1,000 pounds. From the beginning, the teaching of mental disease to students was considered, as well as the cure and care of the inmates. The management was a wise one. Next came an act regulating madhouses in Scotland, passed in the year 1815, that important epoch in lunacy legislation in the British Isles. On the 3rd of February, 1818, a bill for the erecting of district lunatic asylums in Scotland for the care and confinement of lunatics, brought in by Lord Binning and Mr. Brogdon, was read for the first time. A few days after, a petition of the noblemen, gentlemen, freeholders, justices for the peace, commissioners of supply, and other heritors of the county of Ayr was presented against it. Persistent obstruction triumphed, and the act was rejected. How much legislation was needed at this period is well shown by the description by a philanthropist, Mr. J. J. Gurney, of the condition of the lunatics in the Perth Tolbooth. In his investigations, Mr. Gurney was accompanied by his indefatigable sister, Mrs. Fry. Mr. Gurney's report reads like one of Miss Dix's own to state legislatures in America. Quote, Solitary confinement, dark closets, far more like the dens of wild animals than the habitations of mankind, cold and nakedness, no resident in the house to superintend these afflicted persons, poor demented wretches, treated exactly as if they had been beasts. Scotland, south of Edinburgh and Glasgow, continues Dr. Tuke, had not, until 1839, any retreat or place of confinement for the insane, except six squalid stone cells attached to the public hospital of Dumfries. Violent or vagrant lunatics were physically restrained in their own houses, allowed to roam at large, or incarcerated in prisons or police stations. End quote. It was not, however, until 1848 that legislation striking at the root of the worst evil was really undertaken. Excellent asylums there were now in several quarters of Scotland, some of them conducted on the most advanced system. 
but there was no sort of provision for the indigent insane. Now, at length, a bill designed not merely to regulate existing asylums for the well-to-do, but to establish asylums for pauper lunatics, was brought in by the Lord Advocate, Lord Rutherford, Sir George Grey, and the Secretary of War. Alas, the old cruel story was repeated. Quote, Petitions against it poured in from almost every shire in Scotland, and the bill had unfortunately to be withdrawn. Undaunted, the Lord Advocate made another attempt in the following year, but with the same result. The failure of this humane bill was frequently deplored in the debates of succeeding years. Still, it was a brave attempt, which, as Dr. Tuke says in a private letter, no doubt to some extent prepared the way for the victory Miss Dix achieved. Quote, it is not necessary, goes on the history of the insane in the British Isles, to dwell longer on the condition of the insane, or the legislation adopted on their behalf, till we come to the year 1855, which proved to be the commencement of a new departure in the care taken of them by the state. Unfortunately, in spite of legal enactment, the state of the insane in Scotland at this time, outside the asylums, was as bad as it could be, and even in some asylums it was deplorable. At this period, a well-known American lady, Miss Dix, who devoted her life to the interests of the insane, visited Scotland, and the writer had the opportunity of hearing from her own lips, on her return from her philanthropic expedition, the narration of what she saw of the cruel neglect of the pauper lunatics in that country. She caused so much sensation by her visits and her remonstrances, accompanied by the intimation that she should report what she witnessed at headquarters in London, that a certain official in Edinburgh decided to anticipate the American invader, as Dr. W. A. F. Brown called her. Miss Dix was, however, equal to the occasion, and hurriedly leaving the scene of her investigations, she took the night mail to London and appeared before the Home Secretary on the following day, when the gentleman from Edinburgh was still on the road, quite unconscious that the good lady had already traversed it. The facts she laid before the Home Office were so startling that they produced a marked effect, and notwithstanding counter-allegations, the conclusion was very soon arrived at that there was sufficient prima facie evidence to justify an inquiry. A royal commission was appointed, dated April 3, 1855, to inquire into the condition of lunatic asylums in Scotland and the existing state of the law of that country in reference to lunatics and lunatic asylums. Such, then, in brief outline, is the history of lunacy legislation in Scotland up to the date of Miss Dix's arrival there late in January 1855. 
seven years before, in 1848, as has been seen, the memorable struggle in Parliament led by Lord Advocate Rutherford, Lord Ashley, Sir James Graham, Mr. E. Ellis, Mr. Stuart Wortley, and Mr. H. Drummond, to secure humane provision for the pauper lunatic, had been cruelly defeated through the flood of selfish protests against the bill poured in from almost every shire in Scotland. The bill had finally been abandoned in despair, and no farther courage was left to lead the forlorn hope. And yet, by April ninth, 1855, a little more than two months after the arrival there of a single-handed woman, and she a suffering invalid and a foreigner, the following order of commission was issued by Queen Victoria. Quote, Whitehall, April ninth, 1855. The Queen has been pleased to direct letters patent to be passed under the seal appointed by the Treaty of Union to be kept and made use of in place of the Great Seal of Scotland, appointing William Gaskill, Esquire, Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, William George Campbell, Esquire Advocate, Sheriff of the Shire of Fife, Alexander Earl Monteith, Esquire, barrister-at-law, and James Cox, Esquire, doctor of medicine, to be Her Majesty's commissioners for the purpose of inquiring into the state of the lunatic asylums in Scotland and also into the present state of the law respecting lunatics and lunatic asylums in that part of the United Kingdom. End quote. In all this, the simple facts of the case tell their own story, perhaps more impressively than with any added comment. Still, if a certain local light and atmosphere can be thrown around the naked facts, they will appeal more vividly to the imagination. This will be attempted in the ensuing chapter. Fortunately, there remain a number of private letters and narratives which render it possible to do this. Enough now and here to say that alike in its inception, in the masterly manner in which it was conducted, and in the enthusiasm with which devoted noblemen, statesmen, philanthropists, and men of the highest medical authority were inspired to rally under its banner, the whole achievement was the work of a single woman." On all sides was the entire credit of the feat generously and unreservedly given to Miss Dix. No trace of envy or of national jealousy intervened to deny her the full meed of praise. At the most, it was deplored, as by Sir George Grey on the floor of the House of Commons, that the inauguration of so needed a reform should have been left to the initiative of a foreigner, and that foreigner a woman, and that woman a dissenter. Perhaps this frank avowal cannot be more implicitly stated than in the following extract from the speech of Mr. Ellis, M.P. Quote, the commission was entirely due to Miss Dix's exertion. 
after visiting the lunatic asylums of England, she proceeded to Scotland, where her suspicions were aroused by the great difficulty she experienced in penetrating into the lunatic asylums of Scotland. But when she did gain access, she found the unfortunate inmates were in a most miserable condition. She came to London and placed herself in communication with the Secretary of State for the Home Department and with the Duke of Argyle, and at her instance, and without any public movement on the subject, a royal commission was appointed to inquire into the state of the lunatic asylums of Scotland. No one, we feel sure, could read the report of the commission without feeling grateful to that lady for having been instrumental in exposing proceedings which were disgraceful to this or to any civilized country. End, End of chapter 21